For in your time, we have the opportunity to move not only toward the rich society and the powerful society, but upward to the great society. The great society rests on abundance and liberty for all. It demands an end to poverty and racial injustice, to which we are totally committed in our time. And welcome to episode 10 of American History 2. Uh, the eagle-eared amongst you might already have noticed that these are not the dulcet tones of Mark McClay. Uh, rather, this is Dr. Malcolm Craig. Uh, today we're going to be examining a subject very close to my co-host's heart, that of American President Lyndon B. Johnson. Uh, so as Mark will be doing most of the talking today, uh, I thought I would step into the host's chair uh, for a bit of a change. But before we get into LBJ... Hello and welcome, Mark. I'm going to be looking at your chosen specialist subject. Yes, yeah. I would, I would say hello, Malcolm. First of all, I mean, I would say close to my academic heart. You know, like I don't, I don't walk around like you know making everyday decisions based on thinking what would LBJ do. Mostly because I don't fancy starting another war in Southeast Asia. But besides from that, I am delighted to have the chance to talk about Johnson. And the so, so the rumour that uh, your flat in Glasgow is decorated with posters of Johnson are completely unfounded. One poster, and it also includes Richard Nixon. So you know, it's it's, it's very part. It's not partisan. Covering know, all the bases. Partisan. So, Mark, uh, I think today we'll structure the podcast in a similar way to how we did our episode episode on Fallout. So, in other words, you'll be doing the bulk of your cho- talking because this is a you know, the, your specialist subject, uh, and. I'll kind of try and take my prerogative to interrupt you with, with probing and searching questions on the president and his legacy. Uh, so, and I'll do that hopefully whenever the mood takes me. Uh, so I, my understanding of Johnson is, is more from a foreign policy context, context of Vietnam. But I think we should probably start with something about, about his background. Now, according to my limited understanding, he grew up in sort of the dirt poor Texas hill country. Could you expand a bit upon that, about where Johnson comes from? Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, before I go into kind of giving a brief biography, kind of describe a wee bit about Lyndon Johnson. I, I love the quote that the former Texas governor, um, John Connolly, who was Johnson aide for a while and then became the Texas governor in 1963, and he described Johnson in the following way. Quote, there is no adjective in the dictionary to describe him. He was cruel and kind, generous and greedy, sensitive and insensitive, crafty and naive, ruthless and thoughtful, Simple in many ways, and yet extremely complex. Caring and totally not caring, he knew how to use people in politics in the way nobody else could that I know of. Mm. And was that the same John Connolly that is in the car with uh, John Kennedy uh, in the assassination? Yes. In 1963. So, yeah. so the same man that's right there when the president is assassinated. Yeah. And he's, he's also, a, he, he's a Democrat at that point who will then become a Republican. Um, so he's kind of a, he's, he's one of these guys, you can see the changing of the South from Democrat to Republican. Right. He goes for the political wins in the 1970s. But back to Johnson. So as you mentioned, you know, the kind of Texan background, he comes from a lot of poverty. I mean, initially when he was growing up, his father was a very well-respected member of the Texas legislature. So, you know, quite, you know, well-respected in the community, but he actually ends up being disgraced. And, you know, the pe- people in the community turn against his father and, like, Johnson ends up growing up in mo- mostly poverty. Um, 
he, as soon as he steps into the politics, he's a Democrat. First of all, if you're from the South, uh, around about this time, then you're a Democrat in the early 20th century. And unlike some other Texan Democrats who can't stand Franklin Roosevelt, um, Johnson loves FDR. Uh, he's his political hero, um, or one of, and you know, Johnson's a strong New Dealer. Um, and he runs part of a New Deal program called New National Youth Administration for Texas in the 1930s. And quickly ascends the ladder, ascends the political ladder, very quickly becoming a congressman and then a senator. Um, and to get into the Senate, he wins an election by a threadbare margin and he becomes known as Landslide Linden as a sort of poke at the fact that there were many dodgy votes in there. There were whole counties that voted in the entirety for Lyndon Johnson, including people who were probably in caskets at the time. Um, although I'm sure if Johnson was sitting here with us, he'd point out his, his opponent, Coke Stevenson, was probably doing the same. And in 1955, he becomes one of the youngest Senate majority leaders um, in, the, in the history of the United States and then promptly has a massive heart attack as well. So, and that's a, that's a powerful position uh, within the American political system, the Senate majority leader. And I, as far as I understand, like many historians have seen uh, LBJ as, as one of the most effective, if not the most effective Senate majority leader there's ever been in American history. Is that true and why is that the case? Yeah, so a lot of historians seem to think that he was the most effective. I mean, a lot of th I think this also stems from the fact that Robert Carroll, who has done these huge tunes on Johnson, so he's, he sorts, he's like thousand page books, books each and he's on the fourth volume. He's not even at, his, he's only just at his presidency now. And he did a book called Master of the Senate. And this is like a political, like, you know, if you're a politician, you've read Master of the Senate. And um, Carroll, who is generally quite negative about Johnson as a person, but sees him as this master legislator. And you kind of get the birth of this kind of semi-myth of the Johnson treatment, whereby, you know, he would grab you by the lapels and look down over you, you know, cajole you and, like, threaten you and then praise you and do everything he could possibly do to try and get you to vote his way. And that's, I suppose, one thing to bear in mind that we often don't think about when we're talking about, you know, figures like that. He's... Physically, he's a powerful. He's quite a big. Yeah, he's over six foot. Yeah, he can. Yeah. He can. He can physically intimidate people. Yeah, if think, and when he, he wants to. He, I think I'm right in saying he was the tallest president since Lincoln. Lincoln was a very tall man. Mm. Um, I think Lincoln is the tallest president. I think Lincoln's still the tallest president. And yeah. James Madison, I think, is the shortest. That sounds about right. I think Madison uh, is the yeah. shortest. There, now, they, there's they, some trivia. There's uh, some presidential yeah. trivia for you. Yeah, but I mean, what he most significantly does is he. So he's a southerner, right, and who for most of his legislative career votes as a southerner, i.e. votes against civil rights measures. Um, now my reading of this is Johnson's a pragmatist. I don't, I actually think he believed the sort of racist, the same kind of racist things of a lot of the Deep South, um, for various reasons I can't go into just now. But he basically votes like a southerner until he decides in the 1957 to start shepherding through the first ever civil rights bill in and he manages to shepherd two through in 57 and 60. They're the first since Reconstruction. They're very watered down. Like, they're compromised the hell out of just so they would pass. Like, because Johnson, being the ultimate pragmatist, would not accept a civil rights bill that wasn't going to pass. Um, and part of the reason he does this is because he's now got national ambitions. He wants to be president. He doesn't want to just appeal to his Texas constituents. But also, I do think he genuinely believed in civil rights as... You know, his, his presidency, as we'll discuss, goes on. But in 1960, he doesn't get the Democratic nomination, as we all know. It goes to John F. Kennedy. And Kennedy taps Johnson to run as, as vice president. Not because he loved Johnson, but because 
Johnson's a Texan and Kennedy was worried that the, what had been the solid Democratic South was starting to waver um, and he wanted Johnson's help to win the South. And Johnson does, you know, they managed to win Texas in a somewhat dubious fashion. So for, for Kennedy, picking Johnson as his running mate is essentially a strategic decision in order to, he's the, you know, the New England Ivy League kind of well-bred family kind of figure and he wants to appeal to another segment of American society both geographically and culturally and Johnson's that choice oh yeah they're chalk and cheese and I mean the idea that Kennedy taps Johnson to run because of you know Johnson's as master legislator has proved wrong because Kennedy basically as soon as he's elected Johnson is kind of you know nudged off into the side and is yet another vice president with very little influence in the administration Um, and almost all of like Kennedy himself has positive and negative things to say about Johnson, but all of Kennedy's clan despise and make fun of Johnson. Mm. And I mean, up until November twenty second, nineteen sixty three, Johnson's a miserable vice president. Uh, you know, he's stripped of all power that he once had, and you know there was even rumours that Kennedy wasn't was going to you know uh, put him off the ticket in nineteen sixty four because they didn't think Texas was gettable anymore. And part of the reason Kennedy's in Texas is to try and smooth relations between a divided Democratic Party there. So, and that day, November 22nd, that's when it all changes for Johnson. Yeah. I mean, the the assassination uh, of Kennedy by Lee Harvey Oswald, yeah. and we're going to come on to talk about the assassination, I think, uh, in a future podcast. Yeah. Uh, maybe addressing some of the persistent conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. Uh, about Which Johnson will be part of. Johnson yeah. Bec- yeah. becomes part of, absolutely. But, but that, everything changes then. Suddenly, Johnson, from a position of having no power, being laughed at by, by the Kennedys, suddenly he's the man in charge. Uh, so he assumes the presidi- presidency under these tragic circumstances for the United States, the assassination of another president. Could you talk about that li- a little more? Yeah, and here is where historians generally give Johnson great credit in terms of managing this, what was a fearful time for many Americans. You know, you got to remember the Kennedy assassination, which, as you said, we'll talk about in more detail, was a shared experience, you know, Millions upon millions followed the events occurring on television, and nobody knew what had happened. Um, I mean, even to this day, you know, people don't accept it was just a lone gunman. People thought it might be the Soviet Union or someone, someone else. Um, and you know, Johnson sworn on on Air Force One with Jacqueline Kennedy standing by, say, with the blood from her husband still on her coat. You know, that that's as, as kind of raw as it is. Um, and so Johnson has a great fear of being an illegitimate president, not being accepted. But basically, he does a very smart thing. He makes his first speech to Congress, both houses of Congress, and what he does is he taps into what will become the myth of John F. Kennedy. Now, Kennedy had a lot of virtues, but he was not an amazing liberal hero that maybe everybody thinks he is now. But Johnson basically uses Kennedy's, this Kennedy liberal legacy to justify himself. He says, let us continue let's pass civil rights, first of all, you know, as a testament to Kennedy's legacy. So he makes that part of Kennedy's legacy. Um, and that helps, you know, assuage the fears of people who thought, oh, here we go, a Southern te- you know, a Texan in the White House, we're just going to go back to it. It'll be Andrew Johnson all over again from like the 1860s after Lincoln was assassinated. And a lot of his advisors warn him, they're like, like you shouldn't, you'll waste too much political capital on civil rights. And, you know, I love one of his great quotes is, you know, Johnson says, well, what's the hell, what the hell is the presidency for? And, you know, civil rights leaders who are, you know, probably justifiably scared at this time, despite 
Johnson's kind of shift towards a more progressive view on civil rights. They speak to him, you know, worried that he's not going to say anything, and Johnson at, at, answers him, you know, I'm free at last, thank God almighty, I'm free at last. Basically saying, I no longer have to vote as a Texan, I am now voting in as an American and I will push civil rights. And not only civil rights, you know, the 64 Civil Rights Act, the 65 Voting Rights Act, uh, all of these kind of landmark pieces of civil rights legislation, Johnson also has even bigger aims for the United States as well, his so-called Great Society uh, programme. And... He talks about one of the, I think one of the first parts of the Great Society is the so-called war on poverty yep. uh, that he comes up with. Uh, so could you tell us you know, a little bit more about that? How, the, how does this kind of all fit into, because he's got to face re-election in 64, yep. up against Senator Barry Goldwater of Arizona. Mm-hmm. How, how does that all play out? Well, the war on poverty is um, it's one of these projects. When Johnson takes over the presidency, Kennedy had been toying with these kind of experimental approaches to poverty. And Johnson gets told about it when he takes over a few days after um, by Kennedy's economic advisor, Walter Heller, and he's like, that's my kind of programme. Move full steam ahead. You know, that's why I'm, that, that's what's going to be the nucleus of his great society, the great society, which we'll discuss a wee bit more in a minute. And the war on poverty is sold as an unconditional war on poverty, is what Johnson calls it. But... In fact, it, is, it isn't a huge programme. The expenditures are only about a billion a year or so, and it's a lot of experimental approaches to tackling poverty. Um, and Johnson forces this through in 1964. This is to be one thing to kind of show he's a can-do president as well as getting the Civil Rights Act before the election against, as you say, Barry Goldwater. Um, and Barry Goldwater's response to the war on poverty is, you know, Many of the, you know, we're set to be faced as part of a war on poverty, and who can be against that? And I can tell you, Barry Goldwater most definitely was against that. Um, I mean, the 1964 election is fascinating on the basis that it is, like, some people are sceptical about, because Johnson sort of runs a sort of very, you know, kind of pie-in-the-sky campaign about, you know, we're on the reach for the Great Society. And people don't think he goes into enough details, but this is very much a liberalism versus, you know, conservatism campaign, you know. Um, Is it liberalism versus conservatism or liberalism versus Goldwater's brand of conservatism? Well, yeah, well, I mean, conservatism in the sense of small government conservatism. Um, So Barry Goldwater, I mean, Johnson wins the election essentially by painting Goldwater as an extremist. Also, he benefits from the fact that, you know, he's an inheritor of Kennedy's legacy. And also he's shown himself to be a very good president in the, in the intervening times. And one, one thing I love is you know, Barry Goldwater's you know, election slogan, in your heart you know he's right, yeah. and the, the Democrat response to that, in your guts you know he's nuts. Because they, I mean, they managed to paint Goldwater as, as, an, you know, as someone who's quite extreme in his views. Yeah, they didn't have to try hard. I mean, like Goldwater's, Goldwater probably wasn't as much of an extremist as we think. He just had a tendency to say stupid things whenever a microphone was switched on in front of him. I mean, he talked about lobbing a grenade into the Kremlin, you know, the use of tactical... Sli- nuclear slightly, more, slightly more than a grenade into yeah, the Kremlin. Sorry, yes, um, and a tactical nuclear weapon strike on Vietnam, whatever a tactical nuclear weapon is. Maybe well, you could tell he, me what well, that is. Well, he was in favour of uh, using nuclear weapons in Vietnam to defoliate the jungle. Yes. And thereby stop yeah. uh, the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese army from uh, bringing supplies down towards the south and the front lines and all that kind of thing. So just mm-hmm. effectively indiscriminate, yeah. relatively 
use of nuclear weapons. Yes. And his famous statement, when I think it was Nelson Rockefeller at the Republican National Convention uh, in San Francisco. Yeah, it was in Cow Palace. Yeah. Accuses Goldwater of being an extremist, and he has his famous statement: "Extremism in the defence of liberty is no vice, and moderation in the pursuit of." Uh, justice. justice is no virtue. Is no virtue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, like Goldwater is that many people see him as the birth, really the father of modern conservatism, the forerunner to Ronald Reagan. There are differences between uh, Goldwater and Reagan. Um, particularly, you know, Goldwater will go on to he won't embrace the social conservatism that will come to define a lot of the Republican politics and later. And religious conservatism. Yeah, as he, well, yeah. he is. He's against gays. Uh, the don't ask, don't tell in the military and all that kind of stuff. He doesn't care about abortion. He actually believes what he's saying when he says small government. Um, but Goldwater also voted against the Civil Rights Act, um, which was a part of another reason why he was seen as an extremist on the basis that he felt government was too, too, the federal government would be too involved in the states, not out of the fact he was a you know, a hard-boiled racist. So, I mean, so to briefly round this up, it's a landslide for Johnson yeah, in the 64 beats, election. Yeah, it beats FDR's 36 landslide by a few, like, point percentage points, you so know, which is... It's a, both a, popu- a popular success and a success in the number of states that he wins, because Goldwater wins six states. Goldwater wins his home state in the Deep South. Yeah, this is where we start seeing the Deep South become Republican for the first time since, you know, forever. Um, um, as, as the Civil Rights Act has changed everything in the political landscape. And Johnson famously said, when he was passing the bill, I think we've lost the South for a generation. We've given it to the Republicans. And little did he know how bad a prediction that was. It's been for multiple generations. Yeah. So, so after this election, Johnson now seemingly has a mandate and the, the Great Society programmes on his legislative agenda really, really kicks into, into high gear. What did, when Johnson coined the phrase, I assume it wasn't Johnson, it must have been a speechwriter. It, it was Richard Goodwin, um, and it was borrowed from a, a Fabian writer, actually. A Fabian oh, the, Fa- the Fabian Society. Yeah. Oh, there, there, there you go. Uh, what does he mean when he talks about, when he calls for a great society? What does he mean by that? Well, first of all, let me say I think it's a terrible name. Um, I mean, it stands in the mind, but I think inherently saying that you're going to create a great society, well, no matter how good a job you do with it, Human beings are by nature, at least half of them will be negative in their viewpoint on life. And therefore, they will not wake up thinking they're in a great society. So no matter what you do, you shall never achieve said great society. But anyway, that point aside. Um, so the, you, you kind of have to put the great society into its context. And it's much different. It differs from the New Deal in one big way. Franklin Roosevelt announces the New Deal amid, amid uh, the Great Depression. Johnson announces the Great Society while the post-World War II economic juggernaut is thundering on, America's as prosperous as it's ever been. Uh, essentially, Johnson's programmes would seek solutions to problems that, that you know, the, this prosperity left un- unresolved. You know, announcing the Great Society uh, in Ann Arbor, where we both spent a, a nice week, you know, in, on, uh, in 1964, he says, you know, the Great Society rests on abundance and liberty for all. And then he kind of outlines the two pillars in which the vision rests, and he says, you know, it, quote, demands an end to poverty and racial injustice, to which we are totally committed in our time. But that's not all. <laughs> you know, it was ambitious in nature. You know, he says that is just the beginning. The Great Society agenda also would not include not just the poor or those who suffered racial discrimination, but also middle class and wealthy white Americans. You know, Great Society le- legislation would reach into areas of healthcare education, immigration, the arts, pollution, 
and even the beautification of American highways. And I've not even given you a full list there. Could you argue, uh, therefore, that, that in many ways Johnson's vision for the Great Society is actually even more, more sweeping and dramatic than the New Deal? I would argue that all day long, yes. I mean, what Roosevelt did was a huge change in the political climate and actually introducing the welfare state, but Johnson is looking to take that a step further. Um, but not by socialist means. He isn't, let's raise taxes on the wealthy and this. Johnson is about increasing the size of the pie for everyone. Um, and ultimately, the Great Society is underpinned by belief among those who created it that the federal government should be more actively involved in the betterment of American lives. You know, in Johnson's Great Society, American prosperity was to leave no one behind, um, essentially. And so we also have the, the famous 89th Congress. The rubber stamp Congress. The rubber stamp Congress. Uh, you know, Barry Goldwater is involved in that. Yeah, well, I, I mean, it I was, believe. Th- I mean, no, well, it was because of his terrible candidacy that, was, you know, Republicans go down sorry, to huge defeat. By, by involving, by involving, you know, because of Barry Goldwater, yeah. this gives... Uh, it's the irony of the 1964 election. election yeah. yeah. Uh, enjoys huge liberal, liberal majorities. I mean, they've been kind of unseen since the days of Franklin Roosevelt. I think it's something like, what, 181 of 200 bills LBJ sends to Congress get passed. It's unheard of, yeah. He seems, he seems very popular. I mean, these seem like, you know, popular policies. They pass programs that give medical insurance to the elderly and to the poor, like Medicare and Medicaid. I yep. think that's the right way around. Yeah. Uh, and increasing spending for uh, education. You know, what goes wrong though? Because, I mean, the civil, the kind of all these bills that he's putting through, things start to fall apart with the Great Society. What goes wrong? Yeah, well, if I had to boil it down to two things, um, I mean, Vietnam aside, um, which I'll touch on that in a bit, I would say I'd come back to those two pillars that I mentioned, that Johnson outlined in his speech race and poverty. So historian John Andrew argues that, quote, race played a central role in the Great Society's accomplishments and failings. And so in 1965, you have a, a huge riot, only, only a week or two after the Voting Rights Act is passed in the Watts area of Los Angeles. And this kind of begins the onset of the urban crisis. And the urban crisis, by that I mean, um, you'll have a lot of race riots between 1965 and 1968. And, and kind of the, the urban ghettos in, in the north, uh, rather than, you know, where you generally think of racial problems in the south, and also rising crime rates and um, continue to accompany this. And this leads to a white, white backlash um, among people who had been in favour of civil rights legislation and voting rights legislation, but now are, are not comfortable with the direction that, this, the, you know, the, the movement has taken and the more violence that they're seeing, and also the calls to reform the North. You know, the North loves to pretend that the South is, you know, where all racial discrimination is. Whereas if you go to Chicago, you know, Martin Luther King famously said, you know, you know, Mississippians should come to Chicago to learn how to hate. Um, so we're, we're seeing the rise at the same time as this. Uh, there's been civil rights legislation, there is the Great Society. There's the rise of what become to be called black power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the rise of a more militant form of uh, yeah. anti-racist agitation. Figures like Malcolm X and Stokely Carmichael yeah. are the two that always that always spring to mind. Yeah. And how does that fit in with the the kind of the urban crisis? Yeah. So one one historian you know says that 
the, the you know the effect of black power was to bring the great society to a screeching halt um, because you know it alienated other people that might have been otherwise friendly to measures. But it's also because you know the, the Civil Rights Act of 1966 fails because it, it targets housing segregation, like you know de facto things. Whereby in the north you would have cities where all the black people would live in the middle and all the white people would live around the outside. I mean that's a very simplistic view, um, and there was usually you know unofficial or official ordinances that stopped black people and other minorities moving into the suburbs. Um, so that fails in 66. And partially, you know, Jane Sundquist, who worked for both Kennedy and LBJ, says, you know, the image of, he said, quote, the image of the Negro in 1966 was no longer that of the praying, long-suffering, non-violent victim of Southern sheriffs. It was a defiant young hoodlum shouting black power and hurling Molotov cocktails in an urban slum. And in the 1966 elections, the Republicans make quite substantial gains, um, which kind of reasserts this conservative coalition in Congress between Southern Democrats, um, who had gone along with parts of the Great Society, not the Civil Rights Act, um, and Republicans who had gone along with the Civil Rights Act, but not the Great Society, or at least not the, the kind of war on poverty part of it. Um, and therefore, from 1966 onwards, LBJ is on the defensive, no longer reaching for the Great Society, protecting the legislation he has. And, uh, and looking back on this, a historian James Patterson has written a book on 1965 when everything seemed to be going fantastically well. And there was a hit song at the time called, like, it was a one-hit wonder by this guy called Barry McGuire, and it was called The Eve of Destruction. And it's all about, and, and Patterson quite compellingly makes the argument, you know, 65, everything seems brilliant for liberals and for Johnson, but there are many things around the corner that are about to go wrong. And so, is this... You know, the Republican resurgency, if I can, if I can use that term. Because of the urban crisis, and because of all this, you know, the, the rise of black power and all these kind of things, are they campaigning on the old tropes of law and order? And, and all these kind of, does, does that play into it that, you know, they're not explicitly using kind of like racial language, for example, but they talk about law and order problems. Is that, is that part of the, that's going on? Yeah, I mean, more so in 68. But definitely 67, 68, you have the huge summer of rioting in 67. Um, and that, that sees law and order come to the, the top of the agenda, um, basically. In 66, you start pushing it. In 66, you have Ronald Reagan running for governor in California. Um, and he's, he's an anti great, like, he basically runs against Johnson's Great Society. And when he's running for that and, you know, paints the, the Democratic opponent, he's got Pat Brown as a, you know, tool of Johnson's Great Society. But Reagan's message is he does make oblique references that can be interpreted in certain ways, but he's more anti-welfare. This is when you see the real, you know, the Great Society sort of opens this window for, for conservatives and Republicans to push this idea that, you know, welfare... Um, you know, Democrats are just handing out welfare to people and they're becoming dependent on this welfare and therefore we're just wasting taxpayers' money on, you know, helping people who don't deserve it. And also, and, you know, in the 60s, this is when the US society is its most equal economically. Income inequality is minimal compared to what it, what it is today. Um, but this is where you start to maybe see, you know, the, the, the shift moving in 1966. And this is going to go, Barry Goldwater talked about these about welfareism. Uh, in his book, like Conscience of a Conservative and stuff like that. Before we he move, he seemed cranky at that time. He just seemed like a cranky conservative, you know. Before we move on to like the the impact of the Vietnam War, 
the, the major foreign policy conundrum of, of Johnson's uh, pre- presidency. Just, just 30 seconds. The Civil Rats Bill. What's, what's that all about? Because you, know, you hear something about the Johnson's opponents talking about the Civil Rats Bill. What's that all about, very quickly? Yeah, so 1967, huge summer of rioting. New York and Detroit. Detroit has the biggest riots since the New York draft riots that we discussed on this podcast. Okay. Um, and around about this time, one of the things Johnson passes, proposes to Congress is $40 million. That's all, $40 million. Penny, you know, a tiny amount of the budget um, to eradicate rats from the nation's slums. And uh, some Republicans, as well as Southern Democrats, decide this is the moment to have jokes about people. So, you know, so they go to the Senate and they say, you know, they make jokes about it creating a rat bureaucracy and, you know, this this civil rat act. So it's like, you know, you have to, if you do a rat with a southern accent um, and, you know, they, they make these really uncouth, horrible jokes. And, you know, Johnson comes out and goes, yeah, you know, kids are actually being bitten by rats. You know, like we spend more to protect sheep or her cattle, sorry, from rats than, you know, you're today taking the mick of it. But it's when you see that's the moment when the white backlash came entirely to, to Congress. And you, you can see it. You see it. So let's turn uh, to Vietnam. I mean, so obviously, I mean, Vietnam is absolutely key to Johnson's struggles for the great society, and he struggles in the presidency yeah. in general. It becomes an albatross for him, a millstone round his neck, and any other analogies I can shoehorn into this particular part. Yeah. But it's, I mean, it's the thing that causes. Yeah, well, I mean, he called the great society. I think it was the woman I love in the Vietnam War, the bitch I hate. You know, like you know. Uh, so, uh, well, I mean, you could intend you. Know, Look at kind of Johnson's use of language in, in so many ways there, but it is the it is the major struggle uh, of his of his presidency. So let's start off thinking about Vietnam. What's about what's the guns versus butter argument? Right. So guns versus butter is basically um, conservatives after 1966, especially, um, start pushing Johnson harder that he needs to make cuts in great society programs and ramp up spending on the Vietnam War. Because a lot of conservative, you know, what they're called hawks on Vietnam, you have the hawks versus doves argument, think that Johnson is soft-pedaling the war um, and only kind of partially committing to it rather than going full out, you know. They, they're not quite advocating Barry Goldwater's defoliation of the forest, but they're not far behind it. And one of the things, the Vietnam War costs a lot of money, uh, as all wars do. And Johnson realises that he has to propose a surtax to fund the war. And basically, these hawks who's relying on for support for his Vietnam War because liberals are becoming, the doves are becoming more disenchanted, um, they basically say, you need to make six billion minimum cuts in your grace and, and, so, and you know, social welfare spending and domestic spending, um, or we're not giving you this tax. Um, so they basically got them over a barrel. Um, do they explicitly did they, they use the term guns or butter? Yeah, is that bandied about? Yeah. Are they just out of historical interest? Are they aware? I mean, its origins go back to the nineteenth century. Are they aware that it was most famously used by Goebbels and Goering in Nazi Germany in their speeches? Do they, is, or does that ever, or do they just use the term without thinking of any historical I connotations? Across, I have come across the term in like you know in my research a lot, and I have never seen them. Really. I doubt they were aware of that. No, I mm, think um, interesting. I, I, yeah, no, that's that's interesting that they never brought that up. No. Anyway, sorry, please, you know, continue with the about you know Vietnam and and how how does how does he's got to make these cuts. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
it looks like, you know, the Great Society can't survive mm. because of the Vietnam War. How does this impact on Johnson personally? You talked about his comment about, you know, the woman I love being yeah. the Great Society. How does, well, it, yeah. how does it affect his decision-making? What does it ultimately lead him to? He becomes, very, he becomes a very isolated figure. You have conservatives on, you know, mostly Republicans, but also Southern Democrats advocating these cuts, you know, pulling back upon the Great Society. And then on the other hand, you have liberals who are now disenchanted because the Great Society, especially the war on poverty, hasn't produced immediate results. The poverty rate was declining, but not fast enough for what people wanted to see. So liberals begin pushing programs that are, you know, for want of a better phrase, you know, kind of pie in the sky in terms of America, what you would think Americans would vote for. You know, they want to start giving kind of huge entitlement payments to families um, with no work requirements or anything. And, you know, it's very politically unrealistic stuff. But, you know, the Vietnam War, plus other factors like, you know, such as the urban crisis that I've already mentioned, means that by, you know, 68, in Gareth Davies' words, you know, Johnson is a broken and dispirited president. And if, if anything, it's, it's an achievement that he manages to, that the, great, the accomplishments of the Great Society largely are maintained um, and not completely destroyed before he leaves office. I think his main concern is just protecting any um, them being completely repealed by a more conservative Congress, which he does achieve. And so he withdraws from the, the nomination process to run for president again. Yeah, yeah. In, in March, March, March 19, yeah. 1968. Completely by surprise to almost everyone in the nation, yeah. So he just comes at the end of a speech, you know, he's given a speech on Vietnam and then kind of, he's like, stay around for the ending. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I'm not going to run for president again. Yeah. And, th- I mean, does this year, 1968, does it appear like this is a year of, year of crisis for the United States? Johnson says he's had enough because of Vietnam, urban crisis, or like mostly Vietnam. I think I think it's both. I think right. I, I think there's a general sense of uh, turmoil in the country, both uh, from its experience in Vietnam, and you know you can't you can't underestimate. You know, imagine imagine loads of cities were rioting in America just yeah. now. You know, I mean, they, you can't underplay. Well, I mean, these were massive riots, and you have of them. The, I mean, the assassinations of Martin Luther King yep. and Robert F. Kennedy happened in 1968 as well. Two yeah. kind of Quite actually, shocking events for America. I actually had I had the opportunity um, when I was doing my research to ask a member of the Johnson administration um, if they realised when they were in 1968, if they realised they were in the midst of crisis, like you know, in the midst of this special, bizarre year where a lot of you know terrible things happened. And he said yes. I was actually you know like that's quite know, surprising. Yeah, um, and. Yeah, I think, I mean, Johnson withdrawing from the nomination contest sort of gives him a boost in the polls. People see it as quite a patriotic thing that he's removed himself mm. from it. And from then until the end of his presidency, he's trying to seek an end to the Vietnam War before he leaves office. Um, but, and so his vice president, Hubert Humphrey, gets the Democratic nomination amid chaotic scenes in Chicago with anti-war protesters everywhere. And, you know, the Democratic Party is now completely divided between us. You know, back between quite a few flanks, you know, over the Vietnam War, over the Great Society, over race. Um, and the Republicans, who have been out in the, out in the dark for a long time, only had Eisenhower in the presidency for the last 30-odd years, they, they are now a united force. And um, united behind... One and only Richard Nixon. Um, which is the subject, I think, for another podcast. Oh, almost definitely. 
Yeah. But yeah, he runs on that message of law and order. And he also runs quite hard. I mean, people say he doesn't really run on domestic issues. But, you know, I, I would disagree with this. Nixon calls, you know, talks about poverty policy and says this is the clearest choice in this campaign. And he said, you know, he runs very hard against the war on poverty. And um, whereas Hubert Humphreys, you know, supports beefing up poverty funds and everything. So, um, but yeah, uh, sorry, you were, you were going to ask. No, no, I'm just thinking to kind of like round out this this episode of the, the podcast. Given all his domestic and foreign policy travails, how do historians rate Johnson? Where, where, did, where does he come in the pantheon of American presidents? Where does he fit? Above Jimmy Carter. I knew, I knew you would say that. <laughs> no, I mean, he's generally sort of second or third tier. He's either a kind of in there with, the, you know, just below kind of Teddy Roosevelt area, or he's, if the historian is particularly upset about Vietnam, then they'll drop him down into the kind of third tier. Um, uh, but most agree that he would be seen as a great president if it wasn't for the Vietnam War. That's a bit, you know, that's a big caveat. Mm. Um and it's quite interesting, actually, because when I began my thesis, and I, I remember the first talk he gave, I was I I started by saying Lyndon Johnson is the most unforget, uh, sorry, the most forgotten of America's unforgettable presidents. And five years ago, he was. People like there was polls that showed, you know, whenever whenever yeah, showed them lists of presidents in the last fifty years, the one that always got the most don't knows was Lyndon Johnson. People just didn't remember him. But it's funny how anniversaries change all that. And the fiftieth anniversary, you know. He came to the presidency, what, a year and a half ago, and since then, um, you know, there's been wall-to-wall coverage of, like, you know, the war on poverty, the Great Society, John, like, books coming out reassessing Johnson. And he's no longer the most forgotten of America's <laughs> unforgettable presidents. And it's quite funny, you know, I was reading a piece where, you know, Robert Carroll, the guy I mentioned before, he, he, you know, wrote another book recently, and he stresses, you know, Johnson's achievements in getting the Civil Rights Act and war on poverty through Congress. And... <laughs> He was at a dinner with Obama, and Obama. He felt that Obama was being quite, you know, cool and not very nice to him on the basis that he perceived Carroll's, you know, bigging up of Johnson as a legislative, you know, like his his talents with saying, you know, comparing it to Obama being unable to get anything done with Congress um, after two thousand and ten. Um, so yeah, it's been quite interesting the transformation Johnson's legacy's gone through. And what's the finally? What's the legacy of the Great Society? Does it have a legacy in in America? Oh, de- oh, yeah, most definitely. I mean, first of all, obviously, the civil rights achievements transformed America. Um, I mean, there's still a long way to go to have sort of racial equality um, in America. But, you know, without the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, and even the Civil Rights Act of 1968, which was eventually passed to tackle housing segregation, you know, there were huge successes in terms of, uh, in terms of things that were written into the Book of Law. But for the Great Society more broadly... I mean, it was perceived as a failure for a long time, I think mostly by liberal historians who blamed it for the demise of liberalism after Johnson left the presidency. But in fact, you know, like Gareth Davies and others have written more recently that actually bequeathed an era. Um, you know, you have Medicare, you know, you, <laughs> there's this brilliant quote by a Tea Party um, person, you know, they got up to protest Obamacare and they were at this thing, you know, Tea Party, obviously completely anti-government, you know, that's their idea. And they got up and shouted at their congressman and they get your hands off my Medicare, you know, it was, it was their chance. So, you know, and that was, that was a liberal president that brought that in. Uh, the federal government has expanded in huge ways in the education field. For example, George W. Bush did No Child Left Behind, mm-hmm. you know, that huge education program. 
Um, I would argue that the one exception to this is the war on poverty. The Office of Economic Opportunity, which was the main body of that, was scrapped in 1973, uh, the same year that Johnson died at the relatively young age of 65. Um, but in the long run, the enduring legacy of the Great Society has been to intensify the debate over the role of the federal government should play in social welfare, how much government should be involved in this area of, of, of American lives. Conservatives who dislike such interference have continued to see the Great Society as a time of an era of great folly, um, while liberals look back on it as you know somewhat of a golden age now. Excellent. Well, I think that's a great place to, to end the podcast there. Thank you very much, Mark, for uh, talking so extensively about Johnson and his politics and his legacy and his legislative achievements and his downfall, if I can use such a term. I can genuinely say it was an utter pleasure. Excellent. <laughs> excellent. So in our next episode, that's 10 down, more to go. Yeah. Uh, in our next episode, we're actually going to have uh, our 11th episode plus a special uh, we're going to be talking about in our 11th episode, we're going to talk about the Kennedy assassination yeah. and its place within uh, American popular culture and the culture of the 1960s more broadly, hopefully with a special guest yeah, yeah, involved be, in that. Yeah, it'll be a wee bit different to the other ones, but I think it'll be really good. It'll be a nice wee different yeah. podcast. And hopefully we'll also be podcasting from the upcoming uh, conference of the Scottish Association for the Study of America, uh, where we'll hopefully get the chance to interview a selection of historians about their work on American history in little 10 to 15 minute snippets as a little special additional podcast uh, we'll make available. Yeah, looking so forward to it. Thank you very much uh, for that, Mark. And yeah. that's a goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. Yeah, my blood's so mad Feels like coagulating I'm sitting here just contemplating I can't twist the truth, it knows no regulation Handful of senators don't pass legislation And marches alone can't bring integration When human respect is disintegrating This whole crazy world is just too frustrating And you tell me China, then take a look around to Selma, Alabama. You may leave here for four days in space, but when you return, it's the same old place. The pounding of the drums, the pride and disgrace. You can bury your dead, but don't leave a trace. Hate your next door neighbor, but don't forget to say grace and tell.